Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. At 8.07 a.m. on January 13, 2018, in Hawaii, a false incoming ballistic missile alert was issued. These types of events have happened before. It was fortunately an accident. But for a while, people did not know it was an accident. We shudder to think what would have happened if there had been a retaliatory launching of our missiles in advance of knowing it was indeed an accident. We now tend to be less actively concerned about the real outcomes of nuclear catastrophes, and Peter Wilk, a physician who has been active with the Physicians for Social Responsibility for many years, and in particular dealing with nuclear issues, graciously joins us today to talk about the effects of such a catastrophe, and not necessarily just limited to the military effects, but to the impact on our biosphere in which we all live, and the humanitarian impact. This is truly a potential public health problem of paramount concern for very obvious reasons. Dr. Wilk, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Abby. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's our pleasure, sir. Let us divide our time into two sections. The first to better describe the nature of the problem and the danger, and then to look at our solutions, what we might do. I should also point out that there are overlaps between talking about the ramifications of a nuclear weapon exchange and when nuclear power plants or nuclear waste storage facilities are compromised. Okay, as we noted, there seems to be less public concern about nuclear exchanges. Has the actual problem actually changed your thoughts, your observations, sir? I'm afraid that it hasn't. The reality, of course, of what nuclear weapons can do hasn't changed. If anything, they are more powerful, more accurate, and therefore more destructive than they were. In some sense, risk has decreased because there are fewer in number. Back at the peak of the Cold War, we and the Soviet Union had approximately 65,000 of these nuclear weapons through a series of successful arms control agreements. We have greatly reduced those numbers. We're down to about 14,000 nuclear warheads between us and a number of other countries. But still, our survival remains absolutely at risk. And it's so hard to open our minds to this possibility, so hard to accept that this terrible risk we have, in fact, created for ourselves. I see the task in two parts. First, to open minds and think about how bad it can be, and yet also to, in the second half, talk about solutions, because there are some. There are ways to to get out of this terrible predicament we've created for ourselves. An example of what would happen if a single nuclear weapon was detonated. In 1945, when an atomic bomb was dropped, over 100,000 people were killed pretty much instantly by the initial blast wave for miles in the center of the blast. There's also a thermal heat wave created at the center of the explosion. It's as hot as the sun. Third-degree burns kill thousands. Fires are set, causing that characteristic Hiroshima cloud. And there's an immediate pulse of radiation that leads to death from radiation sickness with multiple organ failures. And, of course, there's subsequent fallout that spread for many miles around, causing immune suppression and cancer for years to come. One of the things that has always struck me is if two people have a disagreement and they use conventional weapons and they shoot at each other, then the damage is limited to their particular geographies. But that doesn't apply to nuclear weapons at all. That's the difference. It's downwinding. I think that's the term that's used. It's downwinding. Is that correct? 
Well, it's way worse than that. The downwinder phrase came to light at the time when there was above-ground nuclear testing, and one could follow a plume of radiation that would spread downwind, carried by the wind from there. There would be some of these immediate effects in the area, say, a nuclear weapon was used. A lot of this was modeled at the time of the Iraq War, where it was thought by some that small nuclear weapons could be used against Saddam Hussein, but of course it would have killed U.S. troops who were downwind from there. So in that sense, they're unusual because of the downwind effect. But the more serious effects are global. For example, if there was a limited nuclear exchange in South Asia, India, and Pakistan, in which just a fraction of their arsenals, they have several hundred nuclear weapons there, if just a hundred of them were used, it would, of course, kill millions in that densely populated region immediately. But also, the fires turn out to be a major, major problem because not only is there the downwind effect that we just described, but it kicks hundreds of millions of tons of soot and ash high up into the atmosphere where it doesn't settle. It's not just carried by the wind. It circulates around the globe. It would block out the sun partially and reduce global temperatures such that the growing seasons would be either curtailed completely or severely shortened throughout the entire northern hemisphere and parts of the southern hemisphere such that there would be a risk of global starvation. Various studies done by global climate change scientists using their programming as well as agricultural experts documenting that up to 2 billion people would die of starvation. This would also have caused massive disruption in all sorts of economic systems, migration, the banking system, the electricity grid. It would be impossible to imagine how our civilization could continue as it is. One of the things that always bothers me, and I've spoken to people about it, is when they when they talk of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they look at pictures of modern Nagasaki and Hiroshima and their flourishing cities. So they say, well, we'll rebuild. It'll be okay. It'll be rough. It'll be nasty. But I don't think they extrapolate that two bombs, relatively small, is very different than if we use the arsenal that we now have. Much as I was just describing, the interconnectedness of our current international society is such that those effects would be magnified because there would be so many locations where this would be occurring, but also the disruptions to our infrastructure would be such that when the single terrible event occurred of the nuclear power plant being destroyed in Japan in response to the earthquake and tsunami there, it affected the whole globe. The whole economy suffered. Again, that was just one site. We are so interconnected. It's really beyond our individual imagination to grasp how serious the consequences would be for all of us. Given that we have a major reduction in the total number of nuclear weapons, as you said, from roughly 60,000 down to 14,000, do we still have the potential danger? Are these current weapons, are they they different? Can they be aimed more precisely? Has the problem been reduced just because fewer weapons? The problem is reduced in a sense because we have fewer, but it's still overwhelming. You can only destroy the globe so many times, if you will. There are many phrases that suggest that, bombing each other till the rubble bounces, that sort of thing. The fact that there are fewer, I suppose, reduces risk in some sense, but it's still massive overkill that would destroy civilization as we know it, if even a fraction were used because of those effects to the climate and to our economic infrastructure, banking, transportation, etc., as, as I was describing. One flaw in the thinking of those who wish 
somehow that they could gain some uh, military superiority from having them is a current plan by this administration to develop what they call smaller, low-yield nuclear weapons. They're smaller, but they're still nuclear weapons, so they're half the size of a Hiroshima-sized bomb. But in any war games where they have used such weapons, so the Pentagon's together these scenarios and they troop through them, real military officers, and then they're sort of studied as they act out these scenarios using computers, simulation, and so on. They have one team that, that's the U.S. side and one team that plays the enemy side. And in all of these war games, when they use these small nuclear weapons, they inevitably escalate into full-scale nuclear war because as soon as one side determines that they're losing, they start using larger weapons. So these weapons are simply unusable. And if you do interviews with senior retired military as well as diplomats, they acknowledge this. Frankly, Ronald Reagan, back in the day, himself, when finally, as president, I was fully informed about the effects of nuclear weapons, stated nuclear war never be won and must never be fought, therefore. It doesn't matter who starts it. We'll all be done in by the end of it. Following on this thought, there has been, at times, a reference to a regular nuclear weapon and a dirty bomb. Are dirty bombs... What's a dirty bomb? A dirty bomb means it's not a nuclear device in the sense of the explosion in inside being a nuclear chain reaction. It's rather a conventional bomb that has radioactive material packed around the outside of it, so it disperses radiation, radioactive material, not really a radioactive pulse. There isn't that heat pulse and the blast effect of a nuclear explosion. It's rather the blast effect of a quote-unquote regular bomb. So just imagine what happened in Oklahoma City, destroying that government office building, viewing debris and injury for thousands of feet not miles, around the center. All of that area then, in a technical sense, be possible to clean it up. You'd have to evacuate a large parts of that particular city, and you could send in crews. It would cost billions and billions of dollars. You could clean it up so that it would be inhabitable again. The problem is that it would create such disruption to our whole infrastructure. The level of fear would make it extremely challenging to persuade people to move back to that part of the city. It would be a terrible thing. We would survive it. It does lead, though, to to whole discussion, which I don't know if we want to get into today, about the importance of better controlling access to radioactive material. Under the Obama administration, there was a major global initiative to do this, to try to identify all the sites around the world where there are civilian use of radioactive materials in hospitals, as well as in research facilities, and tighten up all of the controls over those sites to try to reduce the possibility that terrorists could get their hands on those materials. We don't have the time to get into it, but it certainly is part of the overall gestalt of what we're talking about. Absolutely. And what's needed really is a fundamentally different approach to our thinking about these kind of weapons and these materials. It's so easy to get, I refer to it as lost in the weed, with those of us who know many details regarding the impact of nuclear weapons or a conversation with senator or congressman talking about the nuances of how many people would be killed in this way or that way. The reality is these weapons do not provide us with true security. They create massive insecurity. We have to have a fundamentally different approach to them. We have to recognize that we would be safer without them and move in that direction as opposed to current policies, which include building a whole new generation of them. 
As a segue to our second section, I was discussing this interview with a friend, and I asked them if they are aware about the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and the clock. They put the clock on there. We're two minutes, we're one and a half minutes, we're three minutes away. And I said, what does this mean to you? And a good guy. But he really didn't know, and he thought perhaps it was just raising fear. What they're doing is reminding us of the precipice on which we do walk. Let's talk about what we can do to try to reduce this horrific potential destroyer of our of our life on this planet. What's happening to help control it? There have been many efforts internationally to try to gain control, and we were making significant progress under a whole series of presidents, starting with Ronald Reagan, up through the Obama presidency in reducing those numbers and also increasing cooperation among the nuclear weapon states, such that there were regular, long beyond the, what was called the hotline back in the Cold War, that would instantly enable the president of the United States and the Soviet Union to try to defuse a crisis if there was some that they could simply talk to each other and say, did you really do that? And clarify. There was much progress made. In the current era, with both the Trump administration and Putin, and so much instability elsewhere in the world, there has been a retrenchment, a, a drifting back towards the misguided belief that these weapons somehow can be used, and therefore one should have more of them than the other guy. There is growing international movement now over the last 10 years called the Humanitarian Impact Movement, which has done a terrific job of educating current government leaders and and a series of conferences around the world with current and retired government leaders, a retired military and health professionals, culminating in creation of something called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, engagement with the World Medical Association, the International Committee of the Red Cross, such that negotiations were finally begun through the United Nations, not getting much coverage in the United States, but around the world. A treaty was finally agreed to by 122 countries in 2017 that legally prohibits legally binding treaty on those who sign it, prohibits countries from developing, testing, producing, manufacturing, acquiring, possessing, or stockpiling nuclear weapons. Now, at the moment, the U.S. and other nuclear countries have refused to sign this treaty. They won't participate in these negotiations. Our current president is even pulling out of other arms control treaties, like the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in Europe. It's our job to pressure the nuclear countries to engage in these kind of negotiations to take steps back from the brink of this potential catastrophe. There are many organizations in the United States working on this. Physicians for Social Responsibility, the organization that I work with as a volunteer, is one of them. Together with over 200 national and local other organizations, health organizations, academic organizations, faith-based, environmental, other civic organizations, have endorsed a single statement, what we call the Back from the Brink Statement. It articulates a series of five policy changes that would begin to reduce and eventually could lead to elimination of nuclear weapons. We've had a lot of organizing across the country, a lot of educating. Your friend who, who you spoke to who wasn't that concerned about this could go on the website and learn something about it. I'll tell you the website in a minute. Sure. We've had 25 municipalities, including Los Angeles, Baltimore, Salt Lake City, that have adopted the Back from the Brink resolution. Efforts are underway in five states to get similar resolutions adopted. It's been a movement growing and spreading around the country, and we're very hopeful that this can have some impact on the current thinking of leaders in this country who have the responsibility to act in ways that would truly ensure our safety rather than increasing our risk. What are the websites, please? So 
acronym would be Physicians for Social Responsibility, and its address is simple. It's our acronym, P, as in physicians, P-S-R dot O-R-G. So that's the Physicians for Social Responsibility website. And then the Back from the Brink initiative has a website, and it is all one word, all lowercase, uh, all strung together, preventnuclearwar.org. So again, preventnuclearwar.org. If you put Back from the Brink in your browser, it'll probably get you there as well. And there's a lot of information both about what the, the risks are, but more importantly, resources to both educate yourself and to use in educating others, in reaching out to your local town council, city council, member of Congress to try to educate them. A question comes to mind. I don't know if you have the answer, but I'll ask the question. Is there any sense of which generational group of people seem to be listening and going to these sites? Are the younger people, the older people, the veterans? It just occurred to me. I, I have no data. Yeah, I don't know. We, we are working hard to try to, to reach the younger generation because it's their world. I mean, from my perspective, I care especially about this because I care about my grandparents children and the world that they're going to live in. My children, you know, they've grown up with me, so they're pretty well informed. But their their contemporaries are not so well informed, so trying to figure out how to reach them is challenging. We've hired some folks who are more social media savvy than folks my age. We think we're going to be able to make some progress with this because it's such a real threat. It's so daunting, and there is something we can do about it. Folks, I think, tend to have the feeling, oh, this is this is beyond me. It's up to the experts. What what can I do? And yeah, the, the experts want you to think that. The government leaders don't want you messing with their power, their decision-making authority. But I think the current culture among the, the population suggests that younger folks are tired of being told to mind their own business to let the older folks govern the country. And they want to bet. It's most apparent when it comes to climate change. There are connections between climate change and nuclear weapons in that climate change, as we can see, one of the consequences from it is causing massive change is again in food supply, in water supply, access to clean water, such that there are those who are documenting out that much of the sort of international migration problem, the, all the refugees coming from the Middle East and Africa trying to make their way into Europe, in fact, has something to do with the disruptions caused by climate change in the Middle East. The ultimate result of instability in government leads to conflict, leads to more risk of the potential use of nuclear weapons. There are some connections. My daughter commented to me that the prospect of the dangers of a nuclear exchange is the ultimate and man-made climate change. I liked her phrase. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, both literally in terms of that, the debris being kicked up into the atmosphere and causing the, the nuclear famine. She nailed it exactly. She's also grown up like your children, and they've heard these concerns before, but I thought it was very astute. Yeah, it, it is. Peter, I wish we had more time. Obviously, this is of such importance, and again, in the future, we can do more. Peter Wilk is a physician. He has worked with nuclear issues, spending a lot of his time with the Physicians for Social Responsibility. Dr. Wilk, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, and thank you, Abby, for uh, hosting the show.